Good morning. Welcome to our gathering. Please keep your Bibles at Daniel 6.24. That is the text that we just heard Tom read. And I'm really thankful for Tom. I I love Tom's uh, reading voice. And uh, that was great. Thank you, Tom, for taking care of that. Uh, This is going to be our text for this morning. Daniel 6, uh, verse 24. Two Sundays ago, we looked at Daniel's rescue. How God sent his angel into the lion's den to muzzle the lions and keep Daniel safe. King Darius was the one who actually put Daniel in the lion's den and, uh, and then brought him out. And, and he was literally blown away by the fact that Daniel was unharmed. That Daniel had no scratches on him, no nothing. He was perfectly preserved while in the lion's den. And it, it just astonished Darius, he'd never seen anything like that. He'd never seen a miracle like that in his entire life. He was blown away by it. But Darius had heard about Daniel's God. Uh, he, he was familiar with him. He had heard about the legend. He had heard about the things that Daniel's God did during the days of Nebuchadnezzar, the old Babylonian king. Uh, but now he had seen with his own two eyes an extraordinary example of God's sovereignty and power. The legend was true, and Darius would never, ever be the same. That's pretty much where we left off. This morning, we're going to look at what happened next in the historical narrative. And I think it's important to to understand that we are looking at a historical narrative. We're not looking at an allegory, a metaphor, um, some sort of a fictional tale. We are looking at real history, these events really transpired thousands of years ago. And so this is real history. When you, when you look at a Bible, when you pick up a Bible, when you open a Bible, you can know that you're actually holding a real and legitimate history book. And I know the critics that are out there have um, disagreed with what I've just said, but it's irrelevant. It is a historical book. And the storyline that we're looking at isn't fiction. It's a real uh, event that took place. So the next thing that, uh, that happened in it um, has to do with Daniel being avenged. And so that's what I've entitled this sermon. It's called Daniel Avenged. And I think it's befitting that we pray one more time before we actually pick it up and get to work. Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to come and to sit at your feet and to learn. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us today. Uh, that we would all realize that Jesus is our pastor, Jesus is our shepherd, Jesus is our teacher, Jesus is our instructor, and so I pray that we would hear from him today, not from Phil, but from Jesus. And I pray that you would teach us the lessons and principal truths and things that are in this story, or at least in this part of the story. Help us to, to fear you, Lord, better. There's such an absence of fear over your holiness in the church today, and, and I pray that that is one of the things that, uh, that you would, by your mercy, correct. Help us to have a right understanding of your holiness and to respect you. And so we pray that you would work that in our hearts today, and we pray that you would receive all the glory, honor, and praise uh, for all that we do. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've divided verse 24 into three parts. Let's pick it up at verse 24a. And you'd be surprised 
how much there is packed into this little verse. There's a lot of detail in here, and we're going to try to break down all the detail. But let's pick it up at verse 24a. I'll read it. And the king, speaking of King Darius, commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. So after examining Daniel, after bringing him up out of the lion's den and looking him over and being astonished because he was completely unharmed, King Darius put out an APB, which would be like an all-points bulletin today, right? That's a term that our police today use, our law enforcement officers. He puts out an APB on the deceivers who had conspired against Daniel and against the king. It's important for us to realize that those satraps and high officials, those men who put together this bunk law and caused Daniel basically to violate it and all of that, which got Daniel in hot water to begin with, they didn't only conspire against Daniel, they conspired against King Darius because they actually deceived him. They put him in a situation where he had to end up prosecuting and condemning to death his most trusted and most beloved servant of all, which was Daniel. And uh, this was also a, a conspiracy against the living God, in a sense, if you will. These men were putting the living God to the test. And so he puts out an APB on these guys. And the king's law enforcement officers, they left the scene and went to where the high officials and satraps gathered might have been at the king's court, might have been at the king's palace. They might have had quarters there. Um, it could have been that they, the police went to their homes to arrest them and to collect them and to, to bring them back so that they could face punishment. We don't know where they were or where these law enforcement officers went to, but they went out to locate and retrieve these guys to bring them back so they could face prosecution. Notice how the text says maliciously, Maliciously means to intend to do harm. Synonyms for malicious uh, would be words like spiteful, malevolent, evil-intentioned, vindictive, vengeful, mean, nasty, hurtful, wounding, cruel, unkind. I mean, you get the idea here. So what, what we want to know is that Daniel's adversaries, those wicked men who conspired against him, the king, and basically against the living God... They embodied these demonic characteristics. They burned within them uh, with a hatred for Daniel. And, and I talked about it many weeks ago, but they were two things. They were jealous of him um, because he was a man of great character and integrity, and they didn't like that. And secondly, they were scared of him. He was an honest man, and they may have been involved in, in various forms of corruption and money laundering or... Who knows? Who knows what they were involved in? But something was going down. Some, something caused them within them to, to despise and hate Daniel enough to put together an entire law that impacted the whole kingdom, but particularly uh, was designed to cause harm to Daniel. And so they were cruel and kind in all of those things. It was all there. One thing we must understand as well is that in, in, in antiquity, in the old days, it was common for a person to receive the punishment of the one they falsely accused. And that is what we see playing out in the text here. Daniel's adversaries wanted him to die in the lion's den, but he was rescued and vindicated by the living God, right? God sent the 
angel into the lion's den and the angel muzzled the lions and they were unable to harm Daniel, that was a vindication. That was God's way of declaring Daniel innocent. You might say that uh, Daniel was declared innocent by the heavenly court. You know, he was condemned to death by an earthly court, but the heavenly court, ruled by God, overruled that earthly ruling, and God sends his angel to come in and to, to save and rescue Daniel, and he's vindicated. So what happens here is that the punishment that Daniel received was then transferred to the truly guilty ones, as it says in the text, the men who had maliciously accused him. Well, we would put it like this. The punishment they sought for Daniel became their punishment. Now, you just think about the way that the law worked back then. I think it was a great deterrent of crime. I, 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 I do because, man, if you came and made a false allegation against someone and, and the penalty that they were to receive was death or the lopping off of a hand or some kind of drastic punishment, if it were proven that they were innocent, then you would receive that very punishment for making that false allegation. That's pretty incredible if you think about it. What would happen if our justice system utilized this ancient principle? Would people be less likely to file fake and frivolous lawsuits? Of course, they'd probably go out the window. Would people be less likely to perjure themselves in court? Absolutely. The eye-for-an-eye method of justice actually works. It deters crime. Our system, uh, the system, justice system that we utilize today in, in the U.S., on the other hand, does not work properly. It is broken. Not completely broken, but it is certainly broken and damaged. And I think that that has to do with the influence of a great many people who would rather sympathize with the criminal element than uphold justice. And, uh, and we see that playing out in our day and in our courts, and people are seemingly getting away with murder. And, and righteous people are being punished. So it's kind of a total reversal. It's crazy. Well, another thing to note would be that the crime that these deceivers that these evil intentioned men perpetrated was truly great in the eyes of the king okay what they did to daniel and what they did to him was was a very grievous crime it it offended the king at a higher level than other crimes might have offended him and and king darius would not be satisfied with only their destruction in other words, it wasn't enough for King Darius just to throw those men, just to give them Daniel's punishment, to throw them into the lion's den and let them be eaten alive. That wasn't enough for King Darius because the crime was too great. His vengeance required more. Now look at verse 24b. It says, They, that's speaking of the high officials and satraps, the men who deceived the king and tried to get Daniel put to death, they, their children, and their wives. So when Darius sent the police to collect and to arrest, to bring back Daniel's adversaries, he also commanded that they collect and bring back those men's children and wives. 
Now, earlier on, I mentioned that uh, 120 high officials and satraps may have conspired against Daniel and the king. If you rewind back to the very beginning of chapter 6, you see that there were 120 of these men. And, and the text doesn't say how many of that group conspired against Daniel and the king, but it certainly could have been the entire group. It could have been the whole group of 120, or it could have been 5 or 10 or 20 or whatever. I suspect that it was the entire group, the entire leadership team wanted to get rid of Daniel. Now, just think about it. If each of those men had a wife and two children, because that's kind of an average, we're talking about 480 people being executed here. 480 people. Now, we don't know the for sure number. We don't know how many wives or children or satraps and high officials were involved, but it certainly could have been a number as high as 480. It could have been 500, 600, 700. What if some of these families had three or four children? What if some of these families um, featured or some of these marriages, I should say, featured multiple wives because polygamy was a big deal back then. Some guys had four, five, six wives. Solomon had 700. So uh, it could have been 480. It could have been 1,000 people thrown into the den. It could have been 20. We don't know for sure. We don't know the actual number. could have been lower than 480. It could have been higher than 480. Why children and wives? Does, when you read verse 24b, does your fairness alarm go off a little bit? Like, beep, 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 beep. I understand the other guys getting nuked. They, they were bad, they were evil, they were wicked. But all of a sudden we're talking about children and wives. Certainly they couldn't have been involved in, right, in, in putting together this crime. I doubt they were. They may not even been aware of it. Who knows? A lot of times in a family, you have a husband or a wife that perpetrates a crime and, you know, the spouse has no idea what's been going on. I had no idea you were involved in that, Sam. And then they find out and Sam's in jail and they're going, what happened? I mean, I don't, I don't know if they participated. But I still ask the question, why? Why not just those who committed the crime? Why? Kids. My children. I think of my own kids. There's been a few times where I wanted to kill them, but man, I wouldn't go through with it. I mean, seriously, children, wives, maybe the wife, I don't know. She's like, I'll kill you first. I think what was playing out here, and I think you have to understand the times and the culture, but I think what was playing out here, why wives and children are involved I believe what Darius was, was trying to do is he was trying to warn his entire kingdom, which was very large, larger than the kingdom he had just conquered, um, Babylon. And I think that in, in the execution of the men, women, and children, he was conveying to his entire kingdom, if you try to deceive me, if you try to manipulate me, if you try to coerce me, because that's what happened, you will pay the highest price imaginable. And that is something that, that antiquity, old-style historical kings did. They, they, would, they, would, they would go to a very, very extreme level in, in, in justice or whatever to convey to others, do not mess with me. Do not 
try to do this. And now let me tell you something. If those guys alone had been killed, that would have sent a pretty powerful message. Okay, don't try to deceive the king. Don't manipulate him. Don't coerce him. Don't do those things. That's, that, that's pretty serious. We probably need to be mindful of our king and respectful and revere him. But to take out the children and the wives too, that just, that, that multiplies that threat by three. He will wipe us out completely. You might remember from earlier on where Nebuchadnezzar was threatening to destroy entire households and all of that to those who couldn't decipher um, and break down his dreams for him. He said, if you fail to tell me the meaning of these crazy dreams that I've had that are causing me to lose sleep and I can't eat and all that, I will turn your houses into dung piles. I will destroy your entire family. This is an, a historical kind of threatening here. These things happened. Guys in the old days did this stuff. They just did not play games at all. I mean, it was life and death all the time with these old-time kings. There may have been another reason here. I believe Daniel's rescue caused King Darius to fear the Lord. Well, what are you saying? It's okay to kill children and women out of fear of the Lord? Well, I'm not saying that's okay, but I think that might have happened here. He saw with his own eyes the result of God's sovereignty and awesome power in the delivery of Daniel. And you know what? It frightened him deeply. He saw a God that he was familiar with do what none of his gods were ever able to do. In fact, no human being, no one ever had ever done anything even remotely close to what he witnessed with the living God. And, and when you get a glimpse of the living God, the Most High God, God Almighty, the Father, it's, it strikes terror. You see people dancing around acting like maniacs in churches claiming they're worshiping? That's not a right response to Him. He, he is a terror. Is He a terror to His children? He certainly can be. He can terrify them into obedience. But we, we are talking, we have, have we not lost that in the church today and in our culture? Where is the fear of God? He is a terrorist, isn't he? Hebrews 10 is a dreadful thing to follow in the hands of the living God. He is the one who has the power to not only destroy the physical body, but to cast the soul into hell. Jesus said, fear the one that can do that. Don't fear men who can kill your mortal bodies. Don't fear them. Fear the one who can destroy your physical body and your soul in hell for all eternity. That's the one you fear. Our God is a consuming fire. He is awesome. Pizza is not awesome. Pizza is good. Your car is not awesome. It's a cool car. That term should be designated for gah. It means to be awestruck. And when this king saw the work of God's hands, it literally scared the hell out of him. Literally. Oh, the living God isn't playing games. Oh boy. Oh boy. If you don't believe that he was terrified by what he saw, then just go up there and read, uh, let's see, what are we at? We're in 24 right now. Go read 26. He sends off a letter, a testimonial to his entire kingdom. And the, one of the first things he instructs his people to do throughout his entire kingdom, I write this to my entire kingdom, every man, woman, and child, Everyone within my vast and mighty kingdom, this is what you are to do. This is not even negotiable. You are to what? Tremble and fear 
before the God of Daniel. That's a man who had the hell scared out of him. That was a man who knew that this God was not to be trifled with. And Darius may have reasoned. It's speculative, I understand. But something's driving him. We know fear is there. Darius may have reasoned that if Daniel's God, the living God, could stop bloodthirsty, hungry lions from devouring a person, there ain't nothing he can't do. And he therefore respected and feared the Lord. If he can do something that dramatic and incredible, which is really small if you think about it on the grand scheme of things, there ain't nothing he can't do. And I think that gazing upon creation should invoke a similar response from us. The universe testifies to God's existence and awesome, awesome power, Romans 1. When we stargaze, we should be struck with a sense of reverence. Read Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4. Looking out upon the vast universe, who is man that you are mindful of him? What am I am an ant. Daniel's rescue caused Darius to fear the Lord. And I think he saw the family members of those evil men as a liability. There's a cancer in my kingdom. And it was in that 120, and it could be in those children and in those wives. They obviously will do whatever they want. They're deceptive, they're conniving, they're manipulative. They have no fear of God, because if they feared this God that I now fear, they would have never put him to the test. They're a liability. Therefore, they must go as well. The generational sins of unbelief, corruption, and deception could, Darius reckoned, could Bring about the living God's wrath and judgment upon my kingdom. And I want no part of that. No part of that. Darius reasoned, I think, these men were evil. Their families will likely turn out to be evil just like them. Why take a chance? Does that soothe your fairness meter? I almost feel like it's a necessary, I don't want to call it an evil because it's God's work, but it's like a necessary thing, but it, it still sounds horrible to me. Maybe Darius said to himself, I'll cut the head off the snake before it really gets loose. You know what's interesting is that there are many, many examples in Scripture of this among the Israelites. Oh, that, that can't be. Oh, yeah, can be. The Israelites took out entire families because of generational sin or the potential for something that, okay, he was like this, it's going to lead to this, we have to stop it now and get rid of the entire, the entire family tree. Do you know who Achan was? You heard of that guy? The guy who stole from the Lord at Jericho and caused the battle at AI to be lost? Was he the only one put to death for his incredible sin? Was not his children and wives destroyed? Yes. And more than that, his extended family was destroyed. God 
stamped out his entire family tree. His name will be a byword. Everyone. They were all put to death because of Achan's sin. You might say Achan caused a lot of heartache among the people because of what he did. In fact, soldiers were killed and lost. It was as if he had leaked a secret to the enemy. Many, many people lost their lives because of his sin. God would not tolerate it. I'm taking out the whole family. His lineage was literally blotted out, erased. His family tree was, so to speak, cut down and cast into the fire. The Bible shows that, it shows us that the preservation of the nation of Israel, or more importantly, the preservation of the reputation of God, the preservation of his reputation as being holy, pure, perfect, above all, the preservation of the nation, the preservation of God's holiness, sometimes we see in the Old Testament, sometimes in Scripture, requires harsh action. Onan, Lot's wife, remember her? Turned into a pillar of salt. Remember that? You heard of Nadab and Abihu? Those are the sons of Aaron. Strange fire. During the very first worship gathering, they're messing around with a Bic lighter. <laughs> Gone. The sons of Korah, the ground opened up and swallowed them. Achan. There are many, many examples in Scripture of God putting to death the perpetrator and their families. What does that tell us about God? Oh, he's harsh, he's mean, he's cruel. He's just, he's righteous. He's holy. He doesn't play games. We need to get the fear of the Lord back into the church. We need to quit playing fast and loose with grace. We carry it around in our, in our wallets like a card that says, go ahead and sin all you want. God's not serious about sin. He's not serious about sin. Just ask Onan, Lot's wife, Nadab, and Abihu, and countless others in Scripture who were destroyed by him in a nanosecond. And some would say, oh, wrong, Pastor Phil. Those are Old Testament examples. God doesn't do that anymore. We're under New Covenant. Really? How about a few New Testament examples, right? How about King Herod Agrippa I, the one who did not glorify God? He was the representative of the nation of Israel, the king of Israel at that time in the New Testament, and he did not bring God glory for something that took place, and God put him to death, and he fell, and he was eaten by worms. Well, that's before Jesus died on the cross and, and the new covenant. And how about Ananias and Sapphira, who were probably believers, who lied to the Holy Spirit twice? God was setting an example to his church, wasn't he? Oh, he would never do that. We've got grace. You're going to get to heaven one day, hopefully. You're a believer. If you're a believer, you'll be there, and you can ask Ananias and Sapphira. They're going to say, our biggest mistake was lying to the Holy Spirit twice. She didn't learn from my example. She got zapped. If they're there, they could have been believers. Oh, he would never treat his children like that. Well, are we presuming upon the Lord? In the case of Agrippa I and Ananias and Sapphira, all three were struck down by God. So, King Darius commanded that Daniel's adversaries and their families be brought 
to the lion's den to be executed, right? What happened after they arrived? 24C. Are you with me? Are you awake? Good. Do you hate this message? <laughs> I was putting it together and go, this is hard. Yeah, it is. Hard truth is meant to take away our rough edges. God uses hard truth to sanctify his people. It's good. It's, it's tough stuff, but it's good. It's good for us. We need to hear it. 24C. So they're thrown in. It says, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Wow. So they're immediately, brought, once they're brought and assembled there, they're immediately cast into the den of lions. I don't know if it was two by two or how they did it. I don't know how big the hole was. And they just got them all around it and started throwing them in or put them all in at once. I don't know. I, I wasn't there, but they're all thrown in. It says, and just notice the details, it says they were overpowered and broken before they hit the floor. Before they hit the floor. You might say they were devoured, they were eaten alive before they hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Remember that song? Some of you are like, why did you listen to that, Pastor Phil? I don't know. They were eaten alive before they even, they're thrown in and it's like... Now, these details are important. Overpowered, broken, before they hit the floor. These details are very important. They illustrate something very, very important. They illustrate that there was no angel in the den to rescue the evildoers or their families. You know, Daniel got thrown into the den, and he hit the floor, and he was preserved because there was an angel there supernaturally muzzling the lions. But the, you know, juxtaposed to that, you have people being thrown in. They're eaten before they even hit the floor. There's no protection there from the living God. That's what it illustrates. The broader implication here, the spiritual implication here, is that if God does not supernaturally intervene in our lives, we will die. We will perish. That's the spiritual implication. It would, if He does not intervene in our lives spiritually and save us and rescue us, if He does not do that at an invisible level, it becomes manifest and we realize it's true. But if He does not do that, it's as if there's no angel there in the den to preserve our lives. That's the spiritual implication. God was not there for those men or those children or those wives. They were devoured before they hit the floor. The same will be true of us in a spiritual sense if God does not come and rescue. If God does not graciously, it's all by grace. It's not by what you do. He doesn't look at you and say, well, that's a really good person. I think I'll save him. There are no good people. God does not graciously, based on His own unmerited favor, His own love, His own mercy, if He does not act and send the Holy Spirit with the gifts of repentance and faith to possess and regenerate us, to cause us to be born again, we will be overpowered by His justice. We will be broken by His wrath. And we will be swallowed up 
in the lake of fire, Revelation 20. Do you see the parallels? Do you see what's playing out here? Is this just about a lion and a guy and an angel and some lawbreakers and all that? Is that all that it is? Because that's really cool if that's what it is. But you know what? It's not. It's more. God is in the business of illustrating how he saves redemption, justice, all of that through all of these stories. The major narrative of Scripture is redemption. God is a God who redeems. And that's what this story ultimately points to. God doesn't come. That is seen in the very fact that he sent Jesus. And he comes again on top of that with the Spirit. We didn't go up to heaven. We didn't ascend. Hey, help us. Oh, he... He condescended, left the throne of glory to come save us, to rescue. He's the angel of the Lord. You look in the Old Testament, all those examples of that angel of the Lord going around and rescuing and putting to death the enemies of Israel, that's that's Jesus. He is the rescuer. So let's talk a little bit about the parallels between Daniel and Jesus, or at least this text. The Bible speaks of God as an avenger, okay? The the Bible speaks of God as an avenger. An avenger is one who exacts vengeance upon those who do wrong, upon those who commit atrocities, upon enemies, upon those who sin in a sense as well. And so on. An avenger is one who brings vengeance upon an enemy. The Bible shows that God is a twofold avenger. Okay? First, he avenges himself, he avenges his good name, he avenges his holiness, he avenges his righteousness. Deuteronomy 32, 41, I sharpen, this is the Lord speaking, I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. That's the living God. He is an avenger. He brings to ruin. He brings his vengeance upon his adversaries, upon his enemies. Okay? He avenges himself. Second, he avenges his people. He avenges his people. Deuteronomy 32, 43, just just a verse or two. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow to him, all gods. All these, you know, as if there were other gods. All bow to the sovereign God. And it says, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. God is a twofold avenger. He avenges himself and he avenges his people. Daniel was treated unjustly, but God vindicated him and then avenged him by destroying his adversaries in the very den that was meant for Daniel. Daniel got to see vengeance in his lifetime. Right there, in vivid display. 
The parallel is through faith, we have become clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God has vindicated us. He has declared us innocent. He has justified us. You see the connection there? He vindicates Daniel in the den by preserving his life. He does the same thing through the clothing of Christ, the perfect works of Christ in which we are clothed in by faith. That's how we are vindicated. But one day, the Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah, Lion parallels, will return to avenge himself and his people. He will bring justice He will set things right. He will subdue the nations, conquer them all with an iron scepter in his hand. And I really do cherish the fact that he will avenge his people. All of the martyrs, all who belong to Christ who have been persecuted, even in the simplest of persecutions. This is why Romans 12, 19 warns us believers to stay away from that old nasty payback mentality, right? It says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, we don't have to seek revenge. We really don't have to defend ourselves if you come to think about it. Why? Because the Lord himself will take care of those things for us. He will take care of those things for us. And I want to be really practical with you as I begin to wrap it up. How then should we respond to our adversaries? It's a great question. It's not a great question because I came up with it. It's a great question because I need the answer. I have to admit, I don't respond to them in the right way sometimes. And as a pastor, you have adversaries. As Christians, you have them. Some practical ways that we can respond. Well, firstly, we should follow Daniel's example. We see it right here in chapter 6. He suffered quietly while trusting in his God. Do you see him bark out, this is an injustice, this is wrong, I'm taking you guys to court. You see nothing from him. He allowed himself to be prosecuted, and they attempted to execute him. He went through with all of it, and he didn't utter a word. If he had, I know it would have been included. He knew that God would rectify the situation at some point, and so he left the matter in the hands of the living God. Man, I don't have to, I don't have to defend myself. I don't, I don't, I, now, he was avenged, but he certainly wasn't asking for it. He left it in the hands of his God. That's why he was quiet. That's why he suffered so well. Second, we should follow Jesus' example. Jesus understood that there was a purpose for his persecution, for his suffering. It's called redemption. It's called the salvation of the world. We must understand that there is a purpose behind our suffering behind our persecution, behind what our adversaries inflict upon us. And it is called sanctification, being made like Jesus. We are not going to be made like Jesus apart from suffering. 
Suffering is one of the number one tools that God uses to transform his children into the likeness of Jesus. If our model suffered, shouldn't those who are following the model also suffer so they can be like the model? Yes. And, and in this country, in this world really, but in this country and in this culture, we do everything we can to avoid suffering. We do everything we can to avoid persecution. We dumb down the gospel. We keep it to ourselves. And we are robbing ourselves of the preciousness of sanctification that comes through that difficulty, trial, tribulation, whatever you want to call it. I would broaden that out beyond the adversaries that are on the outside that are physical that come after us, and I would broaden it into the adversaries of disease, of every, every type of trial and tribulation. God aims to make us like Jesus through it. Man, I don't sit there and wish cancer upon myself so I can become more like Jesus but I certainly pray that if cancer is in my future, that it would make me like Jesus. We should follow Daniel's example and suffer quietly while trusting God. We should follow Jesus' example and know there's a purpose behind it. There was a purpose behind his, behind his suffering. There's a purpose behind ours. Lastly, we should obey Jesus' instructions. What did he say to his disciples when they were pondering how to respond to adversaries. He said, pray for your enemies. In fact, he said this during the Sermon on the Mount. This was in front of a lot of people. Pray for your enemies, enemies Matthew 5, 44. You know what I say we pray for? I was talking to Miles this week about it. Two things, we pray for their ruin. Oh, that's not very godly. Sure it is if their ruin leads to redemption. You know, in the Old Testament, you see all these examples of David saying, just kill my enemies. Was he wrong? I'm not going to say he was wrong. We see it there. Have you ever been persecuted the way that he was by somebody like Saul who's chasing you around wanting to kill you all the time? No. How would you pray? He'd probably pray that God brings them to ruin. I don't think he was unjust doing that. In fact, he's called a man after God's own heart. But I think what we ought to do is we ought to pray for their ruin and their redemption. We pray that God would cause them to hit rock bottom so that they can discover that God is the rock at the bottom. Right? It's a Tony Evans. It's a good quote. Destroy them and save them. Bring them to earthly ruin. Bring them to heavenly redemption. That's what we should pray for. The whole Bible is cast in a mode of reconciliation. That is the heart cry of the Lord. We should seek that even with our adversaries. Think of it like this. Either way, God is either going to take that adversary, it's either in His plan to save them or to damn them. Either way, justice is served. You don't need to take it upon yourself to get vengeance. What if your adversary is a brother or sister in Christ? Because that happens, doesn't it? In fact, the earthly adversaries, the ones who don't know Jesus at all, the natural ones, they don't really bother me too much. We expect that. But when a brother or sister in Christ comes after you, are like, what in the heck is going on? God, give them a slap upside the head. What do you pray for? You pray that God would 
reveal to them the error of their ways, the nasty demonic spirit that's controlling them at that moment, whatever it is. And you know what else you do? You follow the disciplinary guidelines in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. There's a reason why they're there. They're meant to wake up, saint. Because it can happen, can't it? You pray for that saint as well. Help them, God, and help me. Help me be patient and endure it in a way that glorifies you. And then you seek church discipline. It's important that we do that because God has ordained that mechanism and it works. It works at least if the person of God is humble. They can come back around and work later when they come to their senses. God will put you through a lot to get you where you need to be. Lastly, one day the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, will command that His adversaries be cast into the lake of fire. I pointed to that earlier. This is the final judgment, the great white throne. That's ultimate justice, friends. That's Revelation 20. This will be the most dreadful day in history, easily. It will eclipse December 7, 1941, the day of infamy, the attack on Pearl Harbor, which we recognize all the time and say that was just the worst thing that ever happened or maybe the Twin Towers or whatever. Oh, no, no, no. We're talking about a supernatural catastrophe. We are talking about the slaying and the destruction of people at a level that, that has never been seen. But it won't be a dreadful day for the saints. It will be a day of triumph and victory because we will witness the sentencing and eternal destruction of our true adversaries, the devil and the demons. They are the ones that are behind all of it, and they will be brought to ruin on that great day the day of the Lord.